The following message is by Dr. Derek Brown, pastor and elder at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. We'll turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be in this chapter again today, looking at the passage that Pastor Cliff has already read for us. Thankful for that. And as you're turning there, would you imagine with me a party arranged by a set of proud parents of a well-known, or I should say locally known, high school point guard, accomplished high school point guard. There's, this is a celebration because he's had a successful basketball season. So they're rightly having this party. It's outside. It's beautiful. It's in the backyard. It's, lots of people are there. Both students and parents are there at this party. And uh, as you can imagine, this young man is pretty popular due to his athletic prowess, and he's just a good guy. He's got some solid ball-handling skills. He's fun to watch on the court, and he's been known to have a reputation as being a nice guy, so he's, he's popular, and he's got a lot of friends, and a lot of students are there celebrating this successful basketball season. And there are parents there as well, and here you have the young man. He's say, over in the right-hand corner of the, the yard, the backyard, and he's got parents and students surrounding him as he recounts his successes over the last few years. He's averaged 18 points a game for the last three seasons. He took his team to the state championship last year, and he even won a spot on the All-State first team. So that's all pretty good stuff. I mean, this pretty successful, accomplished high school uh, basketball point guard. And in case you're wondering, this is not me, okay? This is not a recounting of my high school career. This young man has been quite successful. Well, you probably know where I'm going with this one. Who walks into this party but Steph Curry? I don't know how he got invited to this party, but he's there. And he walks in, and his reputation precedes him, of course, and his accomplishments are well-known, they're globally known, as a matter of fact. Three-time NBA championship, or NBA champion, two-time NBA most valuable player, eight-time NBA all-star, four-time NBA first team, two-time scoring leader in 2016-2021, seven-time NBA three-point leader in a season, four-time NBA free throw percentage leader in a season. He is the unrivaled best three-point shooter of all time, and he's the, uh, also the leading free-throw shooter in terms of percentage of all time. And we all know what's going to happen in this party. The crowd is going to shift, including that young man. He's going to shift, and they're all going to gravitate towards Steph Curry. And I think that is an illustration of exactly what's going on here in Hebrews in relation to Jesus Christ and the angels. The author is already, in verses 1 through 4, explained and described Jesus Christ in the most sublime language he can muster. And he goes on to describe the angels like this. He makes his angels' winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Or in verse 14, are, all not, are all, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? And just, that's it. They're ministering spirits, winds, flames of fire, that's it. But the sun as we know from last week, he's the one who has made the universe with his father. He's the one who upholds this universe that he's created by the word of his power. 
By his very nature, he is God of very God. He bears the exact imprint of God's own nature. Everything that the Father is, the Son is. Everything that makes God God, the Son possesses. He has fulfilled or completed atonement for all of his people, making purification for all their sin. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He always bore the name Yahweh, but now he bears the name Yahweh as the incarnate God-man who has accomplished redemption for his people. The, the, the angels? Eh. But if you all so recall last week, one reason for why the author is laboring in these verses to carefully explain Jesus' divine nature is to answer specifically some kind of teaching that was floating around that was tempting these Jewish believers to think that Jesus was inferior to the angels. And so that's why the author is laboring so diligently to make it clear in our minds that Jesus certainly is not inferior to the angels. In fact, he is infinitely superior to the angels. But they may have been tempted to think this because Jesus in his incarnation did make himself lower than the angels, so to speak. In a sense, he did make himself lower than the angels. You can see that in verse 9. The author of Hebrews even concedes this fact. It's a true. He, verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. And he's draw, just drawing on Psalm 8, which he just quoted, that mankind has for a time been made lower than the angels. So it's possible that some people were viewing Jesus just due to his humanity, that he was somehow inferior to the angels. We want to ask, how might this be the case? How is verse 9 true? He, he does say that it, for a time he did make himself lower than the angels. What does this mean? Well, he made himself lower than the angels in the sense that he no longer dwelt in heaven during his earthly time. Jesus the Son, when he became incarnate and he dwelt on the earth, he was not in heaven during that time. He also was now susceptible to death, which angels as far as we know, are not, because they're not physical beings. Jesus taking on a perfect human nature now becomes susceptible to death. And so in that sense, during his earthly time here, prior to his glorification, he was lower than the angels. So due to Jesus' humanity, it's likely that there were some Christians in this setting who were tempted to think of Jesus as inferior to the angels precisely because he was a man. And they had some trouble fully reconciling Jesus' humanity with his deity and his superiority over the angels. And this is a problem that people have had for all ages. One of the big stumbling blocks for people is to say that Jesus is not only perfect man, but that he is fully and perfectly God. I remember asking a, a person who was uh, from a well-known cult as they came and knocked on our door. I asked this person, is it even possible in your mind that God become man, could become man? And she said, no, it's not even possible. So they don't even have a category for it. It's just not plausible. So the same was in this day as well. Times have not changed in that sense. People still have trouble embracing this reality. So that's why the author of Hebrews is laying it out very clearly who Jesus is in his deity. In order to truly appreciate his humanity, we must first see Jesus, the Son, as God of very God who came down and became man. And so that is what he is doing. That is the point of today's message. It's the point of last week's. The author of Hebrews 
is saying that in light of his deity, Jesus is way better than the angels. And that's purposefully understated, right? Way better in that, well, some translations of the New Testament actually use the word better to uh, interpret or translate one of the words here, superior. Uh, ESV uses superior. I say way better in this sense, just to kind of purposefully understate it for us, to, to, to recognize that, of course, he is way better. In fact, he is infinitely better than the, the angels. But nevertheless, that is the argument of the first chapter of Hebrews. Jesus is superior to the angels, infinitely superior, because he is God. And for that reason, chapter 2, verse 1, we must pay very careful attention to this message of salvation that he brings. At the end of this chapter 1, we must conclude that Jesus, the Son of God, is not only the Son of God, but we can equally say that he is God the Son and superior to the angels. But now he's going to take a turn in verse 5. So remember in verses 1 through 4, he's giving us this beautiful picture, this glorious portrait of Jesus in his deity. Now the author is going to take a slightly different turn, although it's going to be related to what we've already studied, because now he's going to emphasize the son's messianic credentials. He is the long-awaited Messiah. This is an important point to make because these Jewish believers would have been taught these very texts growing up in anticipation of the Messiah. Growing up in a Jewish home, likely they would have been taught these very texts that the author will bring to mind in chapter 1, instructing and in, in telling them to anticipate a coming Messiah who would be a son of David, who would be a man who would rule over God's creation. But there's also a thread in the Old Testament of a coming Messiah who would also be God. Isaiah 9 is a, is a reminder of this, right? That this man, this son is going to come and whose the government will rest upon his shoulders. He will be called mighty God. So there are actually two parallel threads in the New, uh, Old Testament that prepare us for a Messiah who is both God and man, both human and divine. The major concern here is to show that this son is infinitely superior to the angels. And so he's going to give us three rock-solid reasons why we can know that the son is superior to angels. We can know that Jesus is superior to angels first because he is God's king. Look at in verse 5. He is God's king. Now contrasting Jesus again with the angels saying, for to which of the angels did he ever say? Okay, he's Bring to mind the Old Testament. Do you remember a time when he said anything like this to the angels? You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And this would have been, uh, this would have brought to mind a psalm these Jewish believers would have likely have been familiar with. It is Psalm 2. Let's turn there now, just briefly. Psalm chapter 2. This is a quote directly from Psalm chapter 2. This is a psalm about God establishing his king in Jerusalem. This establishing of his king in Jerusalem is in direct response to the nations raging against God and seeking to resist God and not be under his ruler, rulership and his leadership and his kingship. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that king that he's about to 
mention in a moment. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We don't want this God ruling over us at all, nor do we want his king. Verse 4, how does God respond? Is he, is he scared? Is he wringing his hands? I don't know what I'll do with these rebellious nations. No, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. He will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So he's going to, in response to this rebellion, he's going to establish his earthly king. Verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. He's now God speaking to this king. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So this king is going to have full rights and ownership over the entire world. In fact, he's going to rule them, and he's going to met out judgment as he sees fit. The response of these kings and presidents, you might say, Therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. All rulers and kings and presidents that have some form of leadership and authority in their spheres, their boundaries, they're to be warned. Why? They're to serve the Lord with fear, serve Yahweh fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, the son whom he has Established, verse 6, as his king, kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is God's king. This is God's son. We know he's the son because verse 7, it says, you are my son today, I've begotten you. And we know this is the son because it says in verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry. And what we need to see at this point in verse 12 is that the author of this psalm is showing that this king, this son, is not merely an earthly or human king. That phrase, kiss the son, is set in parallel with serve the Lord with fear, as you can see. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear. Verse 12, kiss the son. This is an indication that we are to show reverence and honor to this son, the same kind of honor and reverence that we would show in serving Yahweh, the one true God. And the reason why you want to do that is because If you don't, his wrath will be upon you, as it says, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, and his wrath, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But the positive side is this, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. And in the Old Testament, refuge is only to be taken in God. It's only to be taken in Yahweh. Just a few verses to support that. 2 Samuel 22, 3, David says, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. And I could just repeat passage after passage in the Old Testament where Yahweh, the the true God of Israel, is the one in whom you take refuge. Now you're to take refuge in God's king. Now you're to take refuge in his son. So the author of Hebrews is telling, this, telling us this is not merely a human king. This is also going to be a divine king. If you have eyes to see and to embrace this text. But the author of Hebrews, it's interesting because the way the author of Hebrews is using this verse, it's as though the, his listeners would have already been aware that this passage is being used in reference to Jesus. And I think there's good reason for him to believe that and assume that, yes, they would have known Psalm 2 
This phrase here where it says, you are my son, today I've begotten you, and the whole passage has to do with Jesus. And the reason I think we can conclude that they would have been under this impression is because this passage was already being used very early in the church's life. You see this in Acts 13. Paul uses this phrase in direct reference to Jesus and his resurrection. Over in Acts chapter 13, I'll start in verse 28. Paul is going to describe Jesus' death and his resurrection and then apply this phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you, to Jesus. So it's, it's very likely that these Jewish Christians would have already been taught that this passage applies to Jesus. Verse 28. Speaking of Jesus, they found him... No guilt found in him no guilt worthy of death and asked Pilate to have him executed, referring to the Jewish leaders. Paul is just recounting how the Jewish leaders treated Jesus and brought him to a point of being executed by the Romans. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you this good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it was also written in the second psalm, today you are my son, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So actually what Paul is doing is he's reading Psalm 2, verse 7, in light of Jesus' resurrection. See what he said at the very end here? He says, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've begotten you. The, that, that phrase is being applied to Jesus now in his resurrection. And the author of Hebrews would have been using it in the same way. Jesus is the son whom God has established as king in Zion, now due to his resurrection. But you might be wondering, okay, Derek, I see that, I get that. What does begotten mean? Why use that language? Now, historically, you need to recognize that this phrase and these verses in Psalm 2 and Acts 13 have been taken to as a reference to the Father's eternal begetting of the Son. You, now we're thinking these are just mind-blowing categories. Think about all eternity. The Son has always existed. He's always existed in relation to the Father. And uh, the old church fathers in response to the Arian heresy that said the son is a created being, they said, no, he's not. He's not made. He's begotten. You might recognize that language in the old creeds. He's begotten, not made. Eternally, always existing as the son in all glory, self-sufficient in relation to the father as the begotten one, but not made by the father. That was the Arian heresy in early in the, the third century. And the church fathers responded by, no, he's not made, he is begotten. And they would point to texts like this. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and Acts chapter 13. I don't think that's how Psalm 2 is to be taken. Or, and I don't think it's to be taken that way in Hebrews, and I don't think it's the way it's taken in Acts 13. In Psalm 2, the best way to read today when it says today I've begotten you is to refer to the time at when God establishes his king in Zion that's the today note the flow of the psalm from verse 6 as for me I have set my king in Zion my holy hill I will tell of the decree what decree 
the decree to establish his king in Zion, that decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The begotten language isn't referring to God's eternal begetting of the son, but to, the, to God's establishment of the son in Jerusalem. When the son is established as God's global king, he will be recognized by all as God's true son. In that sense, therefore, the establishment of the son's kingship is a kind of begetting since that is when his sonship was confirmed for all to see. And this conclusion, I think, coincides with exactly what Paul is saying here in Acts 13, 33. At Jesus' resurrection, it was displayed publicly that Jesus is God's son and rightful king. You can no longer dispute who Jesus is as God's son, and you can no longer dispute who the king is. It's Jesus, this resurrected man, this resurrected God-man who has accomplished redemption. He's the son you must honor. He's the son you must worship. He's the son in whom you must find refuge. Jesus. How do you know that? Because God has raised him from the dead. So I think begetting here is not to be taken in a literal sense, but metaphorically referring to Jesus's installation as king through the resurrection. That's why Jesus could say after he was resurrected and before he ascended, he could say to his disciples as he sent them out on the great commission to go make disciples of all the nations, he could say first, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He is the king who rules over all. He's the king of Psalm 2, the son in whom we must take refuge. And I believe the author of Hebrews is reading Psalm 2 the same way that Paul is reading Psalm 2 as he applies it to Jesus. Psalm 2 shows us that Jesus is superior to angels because he is the Messiah king. Just, just look around. Scour your Old Testament, scour your New Testament, and show me an angel who is the Messiah King ruler over the entire universe, in whom you must take refuge or be liable to his wrath. Show me an angel like that. Well, there is none, and that's precisely the point. Only this son, Jesus, is God's Messiah King. So now turning back over to Hebrews He's going to press this point even more. He's going to take us now from Psalm 2, verse 7, which is clearly a messianic psalm, to now another messianic passage in 2 Samuel 7 through 14. Just a little quote out of there. He says, Or again, has he ever said to any of the angels, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? This is being taken out of 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. I'm just going to read it for us. You don't need to turn there. This was a promise that was made to David, a unilateral promise that God would fulfill, totally upon God ultimately to bring this about. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." That's the context that this is taken out of. This is the promise that is made to David that he will someday, one of his great, great, great descendants, great, 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 great grandchildren will be the one who not only establishes God's house, but whose kingdom and throne will never be thwarted. It will last forever. It's a unilateral promise. God will bring it about. Interestingly, the author of Hebrews is actually going to talk specifically about the house 
that Jesus is building in, in chapter 3. We'll get to that in, when we get through chapter 3. But for now, we need to see that the contrast with the angels is that this son has a special relationship to the father the angels will never get to have or have never had. He will be the one who rules all, who is the son of David, who has received all rights and privileges to now establish God's house and a throne that will never be thwarted, will never be taken away, it will be established for all eternity. Show me an angel like that. Is there an angel like that who gets these kinds of rights and privileges? Absolutely not. But we also know that Jesus is superior to the angels. So we know he's superior to the angels because he's God's king. He's God's Messiah king. But we also know he's superior to the angels because God's angels worship him. And if there is a text in the Bible that put a nail to the coffin to the idea that Jesus is simply an exalted angel, this would be the verse. This is the nail in the coffin. The idea that somehow Jesus is some kind of exalted angel and not God, a very God, is destroyed upon the rocks of this verse right here. When it comes to who is to receive our exuberant, heartfelt praise, honor, and thanksgiving, God brooks no rivals. I mean, the Old Testament is abundantly clear at this point. You are to worship God and God alone. If you worship any other being, you're called an idolater and God will deal with you because you have sought satisfaction for your soul elsewhere than the one who can truly provide it. There's only one being who can truly satisfy the human soul and it's God. There's only one God who's worthy of worship. There's only one being in the universe who's worthy of all of our heartfelt worship and praise and it's God. So this is a very powerful verse in establishing the deity or the godhood of the Son. You can only worship God. So if the angels are told to worship the Son, the Son must be God. But let us look here in verse 6 because we got to clear up an important point. Verse 6, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. This word firstborn has been taken by some cults, and not just Jehovah's Witnesses, but, but other cults as well, and uh, just individuals who may not belong to a particular group, but who uh, also do not believe in the deity of Christ. They point to this word firstborn, and it's also used in Colossians 1.16, and they'll point to it and say, firstborn means first created. Jesus is the first created of all creation, and uh, Colossians 1.16, that that's what they suggest, and it means the same thing here. And we know, first of all, that uh, it can't mean created being here in verse 6, because first created being here in verse 6, because he receives worship, right? So let's, let's walk through this a little bit. The Greek word should be translated firstborn. That's, that's a good translation. I have no problem with, it, with translating the Greek word here used as firstborn. Prototokos is the, the Greek word. You can write that down if you want to. Otherwise, just recognize that this word being translated as firstborn, that's a good translation. It's used in the Old Testament and the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to a child or animal who is born first in the family. The point of this designation of firstborn for humans, however, in the Old Testament is not to emphasize the chronology of when a child was born 
or when they came into existence, but to highlight the son's status as the one who retained special privileges that the other children did not receive. Birth order is only important inasmuch as it serves as the basis on which a son is designated as the one who bears unique status in the family. Implicit in the most common use of the word in the Old Testament, therefore, is rank and status, not chronology. Okay? The firstborn title was meant to designate a child as one who, yes, they may have been born first, but as we'll see, that wasn't always the case. But it was to designate them as the one in the family who has special rights and privileges that the other children didn't have. Like I said, there are times in the Old Testament when the firstborn title or the firstborn status could be transferred. So in that case, it had nothing to do with who came first. It had to do with the title. Who bears the title? We see this with Jacob and Esau, don't we? Right? Uh, Esau was born first. Jacob came out holding his heel like a scoundrel from the beginning. Jacob, uh, Esau's born first. He's the firstborn. Okay, that's easy. But guess what he does? He gives up his birthright to Jacob. The, the, the birthright was transferable. The firstborn status was transferable. Same thing happens with one of Jacob's uh, 12 sons, Reuben. He loses his firstborn status, we learn in 1 Chronicles 5.1, because he slept with one of his dad's concubines. And you might be thinking, boy, these are some messed up families. And yes, these were messed up families who God used in his grace to bring about redemption. But yes, messed up families, to be sure. So these firstborn privileges weren't passed on from Reuben's sons, or from Reuben to his sons. They are instead passed on to Joseph's sons. And then even with Joseph's sons, we've got a transferring of firstborn privilege. Manasseh is Joseph's firstborn. This is Genesis 41. But Jacob, in his old age, blesses Ephraim, the younger of Joseph's two sons. And so from that point on, Ephraim is considered the firstborn. And Jeremiah even refers to Ephraim as the firstborn, just due to a, a blessing. Now, the firstborn, firstborn status is moved from Manasseh to Ephraim. The rest of the scripture now recognizes Ephraim as the firstborn. Why? Because he's born first? No, it, it's irrelevant. What matters is the status of firstborn, which was transferred from Manasseh now to Ephraim. And now I give you all this Old Testament background, in order to help you see the importance of the title firstborn is bound up in the status it gives someone, not the actual birth order. To say that firstborn in Colossians 1.16 and Hebrews 1.6 means first created is to misunderstand, to badly misunderstand the way the word is used in the Old Testament. It refers to rank and status primarily, not to birth order. And which is precisely why God could use this word in reference to Israel. Did you know firstborn is used in reference to Israel in Deuteronomy 4.22? Was Israel the first nation to come about? No. But in God's sight, it had rights and privileges that no other nation in the world had. Why? Because it was God's firstborn. They were God's firstborn. But most importantly for this discussion is Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a really important passage for understanding what this word firstborn means in relation to Jesus. Again, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read just a few passages from Psalm 89. In verse 3, it begins like this. The psalmist says, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn, sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. This is very similar to what we saw in 2 Samuel. This is the promise of a coming king messiah who's going to establish god's house he's going to establish god's going to establish a throne for all generations for all time 
The rest of Psalm 89 follows this theme and describes God's faithfulness to Israel and his plan to install this Davidic king. Verse 19, of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not uh, humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. This is the Messiah. This language sounds so familiar because it's the language to describe the Messiah. This is language to describe Jesus. It's describing a coming David David, who is going to be the coming king and Messiah. But then verse 27, this is the vital verse. In light of all of that, verse 27, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Here in this passage, firstborn is defined for us, isn't it? It's defined as being the highest of the kings of the earth. And I think that's precisely what Paul means in Colossians 1.16. And it's what the author of Hebrews means here in verse 6. That Jesus is the preeminent one. He is the king of kings and the lord of lords. He's the one who has full inheritance rights in God's family. It does not mean that he's the first created. Not only is that conclusion bad theology... It displays a woeful ignorance of the Old Testament. And it's just a really poor reading of the context in both Hebrews chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1. The author's point is to demonstrate that this son, as he's already said, is the rightful heir and sovereign over all. And only God gets that status. But then any idea that firstborn means first created, it's utterly decimated by the next phrase. Let all God's angels worship him. As we've already said, you only worship one person, and it's the living God. Now, this word worship is translated a couple different ways in the, the New Testament. It is used occasionally to refer to someone kneeling down, just merely kneeling down, showing them some, some honor, but it's short of worship. Uh, in 1785, when John, John Adams went before King George III, as the first minister to, from America to Great Britain, there's a protocol required by the king that, he had, that anybody entering into the room that he was in had to bow a series of three times. So there's, you bow, and you keep your eye on the king, and then you bow again, and then you keep your eye on the king, and then you bow again, and then you can begin to speak. And there's just a well-known story of how this went for John Adams. It went well for him, fortunately. But it just was, was a little bit awkward. So he goes in and he bows, and then he bows again, and then he bows again. And then when you leave, you had to bow, keeping your eye on the king. And you bow, and you take some steps back, and you bow, and then you're finally out, and you're like, phew, I'm glad that's over with. Well, apparently, uh, the current queen of England has done away with that kind of protocol and just requires just a, a curtsy from the ladies and a bow at the waist from the men, just once. Uh, but this is the kind of thing that this word can mean, just a, a, something short of worship. You're showing honor to somebody, but it's not worship. So this word can be used like that. But it can also be used, and it's used like this a lot in the New Testament, to refer to worship. And it refers to worship, for example, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted by Satan to worship Satan. Jesus says, you're to worship you're the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That's the word worship there. And it's also used for worshiping the Father in Revelation 4.10, 5.14, 7.11, 11.16, and, and many other places in the, the New Testament. It clearly means worship. 
worship that's only reserved for God. The question is, what does it mean here? What does it mean here? Does it just mean a kind of honor? That's something you might hear, particularly from those who resist the deity of Christ and resist this as a text that clearly proves it. They would say, oh, it just means, yeah, show Jesus honor. Of course, he's an exalted angel. Just, you can, you can bow three times and at the waist, whatever. But it's, it's, it's short of worship. What does it mean here? Well, I hope that what we've studied so far in chapter 1 will lead us to reject the idea that this is a mere kind of honoring. We can safely conclude that worship here means the same kind of worship that you would give God the Father. This does not mean mere honor. This is worship. How can we be so certain of that? Because in the context, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews leaves you no other choice. Let's just recount this son's nature. We've already been taught that the son is the heir of all things. He's the co-creator with God. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of God's nature. All that God is, the son is. He upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. He is the son of Psalm 2, who you must honor, in whom you must seek refuge. The author of Hebrews is saying that God is telling his own angels to worship this son. Because why? Because he is God. He shares equally the divine nature with the Father. The Father and the Son are ontological equals, you could say. That's just a big word to mean that they are the same of the same being, though distinct in their persons. The Son is the self-existent, uncreated God of the universe. Let all of God's angels worship Him. And for that matter, let all of God's human creatures worship Him as well. Just one more point. Whenever you go into the New Testament and study this word worship, any time it's clear in the context that worship, worship is happening with, with Jesus, someone comes up and is worshiping, like when he was raised from the dead and you have uh, the, the, the disciples grabbing his feet and worshiping him, right? And there's clearly worship happening whenever this word is used. Jesus never rebukes them or corrects them. But when you have... Uh, Cornelius bowing down to Peter, or when you have John bowing down to an angel in mistaken worship, or when you have people bowing down to Paul and Barnabas out of worship, they are always correcting the people who are worshiping. Why? Because they're mistakenly worshiping either a human or an angel. Jesus never corrects anybody. Why? Because worship of Jesus is fitting. Because he's God. He doesn't correct anybody. He allows this worship to come because it is fitting for us to worship the Son of God. Angels correct, correct you when you try to worship them. They say, no, 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 you worship God. And true believers correct people when they try to worship them and say, no, 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 you worship only God. We must not worship anyone other than the living God. Jesus is God and therefore worthy of the same kind of worship as the Father, not some sort of lower level of worship. And I just want to end this section with a, a brief word from Jesus on this matter. John 5, 21 through 23. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. Sounds pretty sovereign to me. For the Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whatever you do to honor the Father, you better do the same to honor the Son. Why? Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is just the flip side of what we said last week, right? Remember that illustration, how I said 
when I ask the question, so is the father jealous when the son gets all this glory? To which the, the sophisticated answer is, huh? Right? Of course not. The father loves to see his son glorified and honored, just like a, uh, a earthly dad loves to see his son get the, the glory that he is due for his accomplishments, right? Well, this is now the flip side. If you don't honor the son, you don't honor the father. And I just couldn't help but thinking of a situation, let's say you're at a soccer game, right? And the dad's there watching his son just just do an excellent job at the soccer game. He's scored three goals. He basically led his team to the, the, to the win. He's got great footwork. He's blowing past people. He even completed a bicycle kick goal. I mean, it was just amazing, right? And, and rightly so, people are kind of gathering around this boy and saying, boy, great game, and you did a great job. Wow, that was amazing. And he's getting the praise that he deserves, right? Well, someone comes out of the crowd and comes over to the, the dad and says, hey, uh, hey, I just want to let you know, man, I just read that article in the newspaper about you, how you brought that company public, and boy, I just want to let you know, you, you, are, you are amazing. I want to learn from you. You're great. I, I, you're, you're great. And not only that, but I saw you drive up in that sweet car. Your car is amazing. Can you show it to me? And your shoes and your jacket and your pants. Wow! And he says, you know, sorry, did you see how my son performed on the, the field today? Did you see that? And to the guy says, yeah, yeah, whatever. What I wanted to say is that your car is amazing and your pants are amazing. And, you're ju- and you said, did you just say whatever when I directed you to praise my son? Did you just say whatever? I have nothing to talk to you about. We're, we're not gonna, we're, this conversation's over. I don't care how much you're trying to glorify me. If you don't honor my son, you dishonor me. Same exact thing that's going on here. You don't honor Jesus Christ. You don't worship him with white, hot worship Because you think he's some sort of lower deity or some sort of angel, you dishonor the Father, and he will reject you. So what does this mean? The Son is worthy of wholehearted, unashamed, unhesitant, passionate worship. When you are here at church, and we're singing songs that are directed very clearly to Jesus Christ, don't be shy and don't hesitate. Offer him the same worship as you would offer the Father. Sing praise to him from the deepest part of who you are. Come and bow before the living Christ. Tell him how wonderful he is. And you know what? The Father will be pleased. The Father will be glorified. So we know that Jesus is way better than the angels because he is God's king. We know that Jesus is way better than the angels because he is worshipped by the angels. But we also know that he is way better than the angels because... The angels are created beings, and Jesus is the eternal creator. Really, what the author is doing is he's just touching upon things that he's already brought up, and he's bolstering them with more biblical texts. We'll walk through these relatively quickly here. In verse 7, he says, in response to that, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. So they don't hold a candle to the Son of God, as we've just described him. They're just ministers. They're winds. They're flame of fire. They're, they're even kind of say they're kind of transient. The sun, he remains forever. Verse 8, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of brightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is quoted from Psalm 45, verses 6 through 7. And in that psalm, the psalmist is actually referring to this Davidic king that's being referenced here as God. But then there's a distinction made between God and God who is going to also anoint this king. And these kinds of distinctions are already apparent in the Old Testament. Psalm 110, which is going to come up, is a place where the Lord said to my Lord. You have these distinctions between 
even you could say now looking back, knowing, understanding better the Trinity, there's distinctions among the Godhead, you could say. Interestingly, the psalmist refers to the king as God, but distinguishes him from God at the same time. And the author of Hebrews takes that text and now applies it to the son, but at the same time making a clear distinction with the father. He says, your throne, O God. So he says, verse 8, but of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Now describing his character, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He has upright character. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you. So there's a distinction between now the father anointing the son, who is also God, and making him king. And he's anointed him with the oil of gladness beyond all of his companions. He is the king of kings. He is the final true and Davidic king. That is what Psalm 45 is getting at. But then he does, so, so you can understand that. You see the, 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 the appointing of the son, the anointing of the son is king in Psalm 45. But then he goes in verse 10 to do something incredible. Watch what he does. He is going to unflinchingly apply Psalm 102 to the son. And Psalm 102 in its context is clearly talking about Yahweh, the one true and living God. And the author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, that's the son. Yeah, that's the son who has become incarnate, who, is, who you know as Jesus Christ. Verse 10, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. You look out at the heavens, who made all that? The son. Yeah, Jesus, that's right. We, I just saw another stat that is unbelievable in terms of the sheer size of of our universe and all the galaxies that exist in our universe. The galaxies themselves are in the billions. And within those galaxies are billions of stars, which are bigger than our sun. Right? Who made all that? Jesus made that. The sun made that, which is what, why we have to front load this with this, all this description of Jesus' deity, because then when you consider that he became man out of love for his people... You see glory. How do you see glory in his manhood? By recognizing that this is the God who created the universe. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They're temporary. You're eternal. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your your ears will have no end. And this is just a preview of what he's going to say later at the end of the book. The author of Hebrews will say this in chapter 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ, you know, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's just not some sort of cool-sounding quip. That is a description of deity. Malachi 3.6, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. To be unchanging is to be God. To be God is to be unchanging. We are temporary, changing, finite, contingent creatures. To be unchanging is to be God of very God. And that's who the Son is. He unflinchingly applies this passage, which in the Old Testament context is talking about Yahweh. The Son has created all things, and He remains forever, and He is unchanging. And we'll close with this. So then again, uh, so which of the angels has He ever said things like that? Well, he's never said things like that, and these things are never said of angels because angels are created beings. Verse 13, into which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your 
for your feet. This is Psalm 110, verse 1. And he's going to repeat this psalm several times. It's one of his favorites in the book of Hebrews, the letter of Hebrews. To which of the, of the angels has he ever given a realm over which they have full and complete authority and victory? Well, none of them. This king will experience absolute victory over his enemies. And in fact, these, this victory is actually a gift from the Father. The Father says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I will give you your enemies. I will grant you your victory. No such angel, no angel gets that kind of authority, that kind of gift. Are you kidding me? What are angels? Are they the creator, the heir of the universe, the sovereign ruler over all, the exact imprint of God's nature? Do they receive worship? Has God established them as victorious king of all? No. They are mere servants that God created to minister to those whom the king will save. And here's what's amazing. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? They aren't superior to Jesus. In fact, they're not even superior to you. They are your servants. Do not yield to the ungodly temptation to worship them or exalt them over Christ. And do not give credence to the old covenant, even though it was delivered by angels. The new covenant has been delivered by an infinitely superior being, namely the Son of God, who is God. Listen to him. To go back to the old covenant is to go back to everything inferior. The sacrifices, they're inferior. The covenant, it's inferior. The temple, it's inferior. Angels, they're inferior. Go to the Son and listen to Him. In fact, that is exactly what we're going to hear next week. Next week, we'll step into our first warning. There are six, five or six warnings in the letter to the Hebrews, depending on how you count them. Next week will be the first one. But this warning to pay close attention, much closer attention to what we have heard, only makes sense in light of seeing Jesus as the unmitigated, glorious God of very God, the very God of the universe who rules over all, who has made all, who is in no way inferior to the Father, but is fully equal to the Father, who shares all glory and power and excellence with the Father, who is the one in whom we must come to. And if there's someone here today, if you're here today and you don't acknowledge and worship Jesus like this, and you see him as a mere man or something less than God, then let be the day that you repent and are saved by his death upon the cross. Only God can satisfy God's justice, which is why this is so important. If you want a savior, he must be God. If you want a savior who can pay for your sin, it must be this savior. It must be this God. And in fact, it, all, it has a lot to do with how you view your sin. A true story, I had... A conversation, like I said, just conversations apparently. Derek has a lot of conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't know how they, it just, it just happens. It just has been happening for years. The last 20 years of being a Christian, just constant. And uh, one time I, I said, um, we're having a conversation about sin and so on. And they said, make sure I get this right. They said, yeah, if Jesus is God, it just seems like too big a price to pay for our sin. And I thought, there's the problem. There's the problem. 
you don't understand sin against a holy God. You don't understand sin. Because if you don't understand sin against a holy God, an angel will do. An angel will sacrifice. That will do. But if you have sinned against an infinitely holy God, if the very smallest sin brings about his just wrath upon you, not a, not a fit of anger, but his just wrath for having you defied his character and defied his life. The smallest of sins requires infinite wrath. It must take an infinite God to bear the punishment for that sin. We need Jesus to be God in order to be saved. As we'll see next week, we need Jesus to be fully man as well. And we'll bring those two together in a beautiful balance. The Son is creator. Angels are created. The Son is the heir of all things. Angels are part of the inheritance. The Son is equal to God. Angels are infinitely below God. The Son is worthy of worship. The angels worship Him. The Son runs the universe. The angels do the Son's bidding. So in light of the glory of the Son, let us make sure that we pay careful and close attention to the message that He brought so that we will, as we've seen the last couple of weeks, so that we will persevere to the end and not fall away or drift away from the faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, the Son of God, who is God of very God, who is equal to you, who is co-creator, who is equal in power and glory, in no way inferior to you, superior to all created reality, the one true God in whom we can seek and find refuge because he has paid for our sins. He is our perfect righteousness. Open our eyes. Those who cannot see these things, I pray you to open their eyes for the first time today. And those of us whose eyes have become clouded, you would revive our hearts and open our eyes once again. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.